Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is Zim J Network in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce. And this is going to be so cool. Because, you know, just looking at the uh, summary of the show, of the book, and it says, Rushing Waters, Dead Bodies and Secrets, which is so cool. And the author of Dead Man's Leap is here. Tina's here. And if you're listening to the news, you're going to love this because the storms are raging in Kentucky and everywhere. And this sort of just fits right in. It does, doesn't it? (laughs) So good morning and welcome to, it's not raining here yet, but it will be later. (laughs) Oh, I certainly hope it starts to rain here, Fran, I have to tell you. Yeah, where are you? We need a badly. I'm I'm not. I'm actually living in the Catskill Mountain region in the Hudson Valley, similar to the setting of my book. Oh. Um, and I moved up here about, up. I don't know, eight years ago. That's right. We talked about this last time. And uh, so grateful for you to having me back. Um, yeah, but it's been mm. drought season here. And my, my mm. vegetable garden, my lawn, everything is just Aww. suffering. Well, it might rain later. You never know because I, I'm my favorite channel. By the way, people is the Weather Channel. Oh. I sit and watch. I watch them all over with Kentucky, whatever. And last week, the author that did Finding the Light in the Lost Year, she came from St. Louis, and it was pouring at the during the show and everything. So, I got a I got a full taste of it. So, tell us um, the summary. How did you create the first scene? And how does it stage the sta- set the stage for the rest and the title? Oh, that was really cool. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, it's it's interesting for me because the the whole premise of the book is rather new, but on but the actual idea of Dead Man's Leap of this cliff and the cliff diving has actually been in my mind for for years. It's kind of loosely based on a true story. I um. Like I said, I, I moved up here to this area about eight years ago, but I've always been connected here. I have family and stuff. My relatives have a, or they had, they just recently gave it up, one of those little resorts in the Catskills. You know, I used to teach dance. Just, you know, the kind of things you think of, like dirty dancing. Mm. So I've always been coming up here, and one year I, I lived here as a young teenager, and there was this, I heard a story about an, um, an older teenager, the older brother of a acquaintance of mine, who took a, a jump intentionally, the kids used to do this, jump off this cliff, and he ended up in a wheelchair. And I remember being struck by that. It stayed with me forever that they, these kids were having fun. This is something they chose to do. Like, I would never have done such a thing. And thinking about the consequences and just, I don't know, it really stuck with me. So I have um, the opening of the book, which... Uh, a teenager from my book named Trevor, right on the edge, right at the tip of the cliff there with his toes gripping, mm. and we don't we don't know if he's going to jump, we don't know if he's going to be pushed, we don't know 
you know, what's in his head, if he's suicidal, we just don't know. And, um, you know, as the scene evolves, we'll, we figure that out a little bit better. But he's um, a character that was in the first book, uh, Winter Witness, and if you read that, you'll kind of understand some of the reasons why he might find himself there. And, um, and he's dealing with, you know, he is dealing with a lot of baggage. But Dead Man's Leap is sort of like the actual cliff in the story is finds its way in the story over and over again. There are like three, four, maybe four or five major scenes that take place either at the top of the cliff or at the foot of the cliff. Um, but it's also symbolic for me because um, the book has few themes, and one of them is about being able to let go and mm. uh, take a leap of faith. And so I feel I, I, need, I felt like I needed to open with that theme because it was kind of important for me to understand the core themes of the book. And and it all stems from that one story I heard you know, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is and, this uh, is really I I have acrophobia, so I was getting nervous oh, at the top of the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, like, I have to say I wouldn't I would never jump, and and um, I also I'm not a strong swimmer either, so I'm a cautious person. So that was the other thing. I was a young person when I first heard the story, but I've always been cautious to this day. So to me, it's such folly to do such a thing, you know. And um, and like I said, I'm not a strong swimmer either. So for me, it had a built-in tension, you know, from the beginning. Well, some of the guys that I grew up with a long time ago. We li- we grew up at breezy corners in the mont- mountains. I grew up at April Sunrise Cottages for for a while mm-hmm. until they, and yeah, Monticello was my like home. Whatever every summer, and some of the kids you have no idea what they would do. Mm. Exactly, and, yeah. exactly. I sit on yeah, the sidelines and watch to, often. Well, my nephew is now. He's not that much younger than me. Jay 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 is fifty three, but he's a monster. <laughs> he's still a monster, and he's. <laughs> He he used to collect frogs and stuff, and my mother used to send me into the woods to get him for the because he lost his frog or got it. I said, why why are you sending me? And I'm the aunt. What about the mother? Oh no, she's busy. So I got skunked a couple <laughs> of times. Yes, I did. I bet. So tell us about Bianca. Why did she move to Bitula? Why did she go there? She's got well, a history so too. She does have her history. So Batavian Hudson is a fictitious village that I created based on my love of this area where I am, like I said, in the upper Hudson Valley. And um, and she, she did what I did. She retired early from her work with her husband. They were both teachers. They retire early, and they decide to move to this beautiful area because they want to be in a quiet Village. They don't. They no longer want the hustle and bustle and everything that goes with that in the city. And he comes up to go farm. Her husband Richard. She, he's going to farm and catch up on all the research he's never done. And she's going to write her novel finally. And um, and they do. They set up this hobby farm and they live in Batavia for a while. But um, what happens at the opening of Winter Witness? She's already a widow at the opening of the first book in the mm. series. He passes on early, and um, he was older, so it's not, he wasn't ridiculously young when he passed on, but it was unexpected. Mm. So the time that they had gotten into this village, they really were living their own lonely little 
perfect life together. But once he's mm. gone, she realizes she has to kind of reach out into the community. She has to have something for herself there. And to, whether it's companionship or, um, you know, support system. She lives on a hobby farm all by herself. You know, she needs somebody. And so she reaches out and gets, becomes part of the community. And that's re- really where the first book starts, with her stepping into the world. Well, I read the first book, and now I read the second one. And I'll I, have to, I have I to be very, I have to be, <laughs> I have to be very honest. They don't give me a choice with partners in crime. They just tell me you're going to do it. But basically, seriously, I read the first book, and then I said I have to read the second. I don't always read everybody's second book, people, because well, sometimes I'm very the first, grateful. the second book is good. The first book is like, oh my god, uh, yeah. yeah, it's been happening well, a lot. Thank, so, thank you, though. I really appreciate it. Well, she does something I do. She talks. She tells us about Richard and why she talks to his picture. I talked to my sister's picture. My my niece's yes. husband did something very bizarre, which I, I wish he would have done for me. He made a plaque for her outside yard of my sister's face, and it looks like her. Oh. It really is a picture of her. So she yeah she emailed me the picture so I could talk to her too, and complained that she's not wow. here to drive me crazy. So oh, why does he she talk to the picture? Yeah, because you know sometimes it makes you feel better. And well, it other does. things. And that's, that's what, yeah. Well, that, well, that's exactly what she does. She places all her favorite pictures of him from different events and times in his mm-hmm. life, and there's one in every room in the house. And as she moves through the house, she always has him in each room. And so she talks to him because she hasn't really let go. They just, you know, she, she'll just mumble about what's going on in her life. She'll ask advice. She will hear answers, you know, not for real, you know, she... She wishes these answers. She knows how he might answer, and, and she takes great comfort in that. And it's it's an important ritual for her because she hasn't she hasn't let go yet. She hasn't really. I mean, she knows he's gone, but she hasn't really mourned him properly. She's not ready to. And so these these conversations she has with this photograph are sort of her way of kind of keeping it at bay. You know, the real grieving part. It's you know exactly. you you just never really let go of sometimes I know, so no you don't I mean I always wake up I have my grandmother's photo on my nightstand and you know it's one of the first things mm-hmm. I see and it gives me great comfort to just see her smiling face there you know it's it's a silly picture of us a family mm-hmm. picture with her kissing my sister and it's a really sweet fun picture and you know that's how I kind of interpreted how Bianca might do this. Tell us about Mara and Joel, and how come you get an uneasy feeling about these two? I don't know about them. Yeah, so they they enter the story, and when they do things, that's the next kind of bout of tension. So we get introduced to Leonard Marshall. Um, Leonard owns the, the historic inn in the town, and yeah. he's um, they, they've got a full house coming in the last couple of people arrive and when he greets them he's you know it's the the reservation is made under Mara's name but when the gentleman who's with her shows up we realize that there's some sort of connection there and we know that we've stepped into the next problems in the story um there's something in the background there and they both sort of decide they're not going to let on to anybody that there is 
uh, a shared past there. And there's also some tension mm. between Mara and Joel. Um, they are work colleagues. They're partners in this um, antique business. Um, and they, they're, she's a little younger than he is. She's a new partner with him. But they're also lovers. And their um, connection, though, seems stronger on the part of Mara than it does on the part of Joel. So there's a conflict, a tension there. We're not mm. sure what's going on in that relationship. We don't know right off the bat that they, they're a couple, but she starts to sense it right away that at least she wants to be. So tell us about Leonard and Annette. And uh, they were interesting, too. And how does in comes, how, do, how come this in comes into play for the rummage sale and the auction? And what are the interesting items for, up for auction? I used to love auctions like that, rummage sales and yeah. auto auctions and stuff. They don't have that anymore around here because of the stupid pandemic. But, yeah, it was fun. Oh, there are so many things that were affected by the pandemic. It's true. Well, um, so the thing is, they um, this auction started out as, you know, just a rummage sale to raise money. And it turned over mm. the years, you know, you get a little backstory. Over the years, it turns into something more high-end. And it starts attracting dealers from the city because they know that there are all these, like, little little treasure troves in these old historic houses um, as people come and renovate. Sometimes they let go of things. And so this thing kind of built up. And because Leonard has a background in, the, in this line of work, he and another villager are sort of in charge of pricing items for the auction and for the sale. Mm. And, um, and it's housed at the, and everything is housed at the, um, at the inn because of its history. And so, and then as far as the kinds, and so Annette and Leonard are this wonderful, loving couple. You know that he has, you kind of get a feeling that he's left some stuff behind, and he started fresh and moved to Batavia from the city years ago with Annette, and that they're really happy running their inn. How long will that stay the case? You'll have to read the book to find out. But So you know that they have mm-hmm. this wonderful connection. And then um, as far as the interesting items that go up for sale, um, the book is also about learning to let go of like material things and, mm. and 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 realizing that objects have more power over us than they might they might that they should really and that we kind of have to value the intangible in life and so the story opens with um, not opens because it opens on the cliff but we learn quickly that people are scouring their attics and their basements for things to donate because the proceeds are for charity for the children's hospital. So everybody wants to participate. Um, and what is interesting, I think, to the reader is that this is book two in the series. We already know these characters. And what happens is each of them is donating things that are personal but valuable. And it tells you a little bit more about each person. So Eugene Wilkins, the guy who runs the you know, the town cub diner, the little diner cellars, his wife has passed on and he's considering giving up her little Persian um, fur coat and he's not sure he can part with mm. it. It still has her scent in the collar, you know. And um, Bianca is going to donate some of Richard's valuable, you know, first edition books and things like that that, um, that she she doesn't need anymore and she knows will benefit the children's, you know, charity. And Mike 
the sheriff gives up his vinyl collection because his wife no longer wants all that clutter and all those scratchy albums. She wants, you know, clear, crystal, crystal clear sound. So it's not just that the items are valuable. Some are, some are less valuable, but it's their connection to the people, I think, that's most interesting. I, I, I am not happy the fact that I had all the albums, you know, record albums that my dad got me when I was younger, and um, mm. I gave them to somebody that I grew up with, and I said, gee, I should have kept them. It was just like, mm-hmm. yeah, my, my sister's ex-husband, this, the second one, the monster, um, <laughs> my, we used to, we, we, my sister had a beautiful singing voice, and me, I majored in music, but voice was not one of my better subjects. I know, keyboard harmony, piano, all violin, Certainly all that, I could ace it. <laughs> And and I have a perfect pitch. So when I had to get up and, you know, sing, because everybody had to take this class, I actually brought um, earplugs for everybody so they didn't have to hear me, <laughs> including the I swear no. to God, it was horrible. And and you had to get up at the end. The last class was you had to get up in front of 200 people and do a program of songs. Oh, my I won't even, goodness. I won't even tell you what I did. I mean, they're still talking about it and cracking up. And the professor at the end looked at me and he said, that was quite original. I said, look, I can't sing on key, but in these particular great songs that I made up, I sang pretty much on key. And he said, I'm going to give you, I had an A average in music, it bothered me. He said, I'll give you a B plus in this and I'll give you another B plus not to take the next class. I said, you got it. Nice not to take it again. That's a great story. I, I can't sing either. My sister's got the voice in the family, but I... I sing in the shower, I sing in the car, but I don't sing it. I would never sing in front of 200 people. Oh, my goodness, no. I, I had no choice, and everybody in the club, my sister sang in Broadway shows. She danced. She was very talented. Oh, wow. And, and, there's me. and my, my sister said, I don't know how you could be related. My mother sang, my brother, my father, my family, <laughs> not me. I said, what can I say? I'm just the brains of the family. So... <laughs> this this is this guy Joel, and what did he want? And what did what did Bianca want? The Ned Suk. What is that? And what did he okay, want? So he wanted one particular thing. Well, he did want one thing, but we don't actually know from the perspective of yeah. in that scene. We don't actually know what he wants. But the core item on in this story is this Netsuke. It's a Japanese artifact. And this piece, um, we learn later on, has some value. But at the time, mm. it's just a beautiful carved little statuette. And the Netsuke's are um, made uh, either from wood or ivory. They're a little carved, I don't know, an inch or two uh, high. And they have two holes drilled through the back because they were used with... Um, the obi, the belt that the men wore on their traditional kimono, and it's used to help tie that belt and used as a counterweight against a money pouch or a tobacco pouch or something like that. And it's this really beautiful piece, and Bianca wants it. We're not sure what Joel wants. We'll learn later that mm. that's the piece that he wanted. Bianca wants it because without knowing its value, um, she recognizes the character that's carved, and it's, it's called Ebisu, who's one mm-hmm. of the um, Japanese gods of good fortune. And when she went to visit her son, I'll give you a little backstory here. I have a son who lives in Japan. He's been there for 12 years. And, oh, um, God. 
my my main character also has a son, imagine, so similar to my story, right, who lives in Japan. So there are some Japanese elements that enter into my book. And so that's why I chose this piece. So Bianca remembers when she was visiting her son that his favorite cafe was named Ebisu and that it was decorated, you know, inside, like the plates had an image of him. And, you know, so she's like, oh, you know, I want, I want this for myself as a little token to have around. So she tries to bid on this item in advance um, or, and, and Annette, who's running the tables, said, you know, I'll, I promise it to you, so it's for you. Um, so she has a personal connection to it, but in actuality, there's some value to this item. So with more, there are several characters that we can do briefly. Ernie, Eugene, and Stella. And then the, the part that was really interesting, because I love tournaments, except fishing, I wouldn't even know where to start, is a fishing tournament. Okay. And what is the prize in Claire? I love Claire. Yeah, Claire is one of my favorite characters. So, so Claire is, um, she's a gossip monger. And, you know, when you live in a small town like this, and I'm living in one now, right, you are friends with everyone because it is so small. And you all cross paths all the time, all through the day or through the week. And you don't all, you wouldn't necessarily all pick each other as friends. But because it's a small community, you are all friendly. It's like family, and you don't – you kind of have to learn to live with everybody because otherwise how uncomfortable would it be, right? So Claire is one of those kind of uncomfortable characters because she's such a gossip monger. Her favorite line is, you know, I don't like to gossip, but – and then she proceeds to gossip. Um, but she's also very kind, and she gives her time to charity, and she gives – she bakes for charity. She's a, just, she's a kind person, too. But Claire is also the eight-time winning champion of the fishing tournament. Nobody yeah. knows why. <laughs> and um, so they have this fishing tournament that's happening around the same time as this auction. So these two events are sort of building up in the community, and they, they look forward to it every year. And the prize is usually a nice size uh, cash reward. And so everybody wants to participate, one, because it's that kind of a village. Everybody does these things together. Two, because the winnings are really worth it. And three, because somebody wants to fit the, the competition. Like, who, why can't we beat Claire? And, um, and so there are these other characters. Um, one of the things I loved about writing this series was populating it with these people that I just have learned to love. And so Ernie and Eugene... Um, Eugene and Stella were from the diner, like I mentioned earlier. Stella's gone now. Um, there was Ernie. There's a few more people, Olivia, Claire, Bert. And they're all childhood friends. They all went through the schools together, and they're all mm. very, very close. And they're like brothers and sisters and very protective of each other. So it's that tight-knit group that Bianca's an outsider. You know, she's, they're starting to bring her in, but... You know. I love Claire. I felt bad. What can I say? So tell us about see, Olivia is my kind of person. Tell us about oh, mine too. the essay. See, I'm 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 the queen of essays in my family. That's what I was oh, told. Oh yeah. So, so and you yes, would and my niece. So, yeah. So tell us about her essay and why she wrote it, 
And then why do so many people, I mean, I know there are teenagers that, you know, even today that would be crazy enough to jump off a dead man's leap and get killed, which is not smart. Yeah. I mean, kids do things. They just, they just do. So Olivia writes, um, she's now at this book, she's the editor of the local paper, but she's known for her column that runs every Friday on the last page Mm. of the paper because her name is Olivia Last, and so her column is the last page. And she writes an essay that basically her, her musings, and um, this, uh, and, and every essay for every, so there's one essay in every book, and it's, the, my plan is to entitle the book based on the title of her essay. So she wrote the essay in Winter, uh, you know, at the last page in uh, Winter Witness, and that's, mm-hmm. it gets the title from her essay in Dead Man's Leap, she writes an essay about deciding to finally jump off Dead Man's Leap as a grown woman. She's a cancer survivor. She's in her mid, mid-40s, I think. Yeah, she's in her mid-40s. She's basically the closest thing that Bianca has to a best friend. Um, she's one of those people who, once she survived cancer, has decided that there are things that she's missing in life and that she needed to mm-hmm. kind of pull herself up by her bootstraps and and, and go experience the things that she's missed. And she decides that Dead Man's Leap, when she was a young person, is not something she would ever, she's much too cautious, she would never jump off Dead Man's Leap. But then she realized that maybe people were actually um, not so much afraid, all that, all that tension she would feel up there and the screams and all that, those weren't so much fear as exhilaration. And so she tried it one day while nobody was, you know, she went and did it. And she said that it was really so, it was another version of rebirth after, you know, she felt that surviving cancer was a form of rebirth. And she said this was too, that she was able to give in to her fears and try to overcome them. And that's really why she jumped that, again, that leap of faith. Um, And that's, that's really the main reason why she did it. And when she did it, a lot of things became clear to her, paths that she'd chosen and things that were bothering her, her mm-hmm. baggage. I don't want to talk about too much about everybody's baggage because it all comes mm-hmm. out in the book. Um, it, she sort of felt clear, clear-headed about how to proceed. I understand what you're saying. And sometimes you just need that one thing to make you see yep. things the way they really are. I know. It, it's, it's, it's scary. But it's the truth. But sometimes, you know, I read the book, and by the way, your book has a destination. Um, My dermatologist, Mm -hmm. I don't go to see him that often, but Dr. M, Dr. Mermelstein said I can't come without books. I'm serious. (laughs) I'm serious. Honest to God, I I I can't come without books. The whole office wants to know what I'm reading, what I'm writing. Go ahead. Yep. And he said I have to send, I have to put your book in the pile. I bought him like 40 about two weeks ago, so I've got that one. On top of which, he said, did you get Daniel, Daniel Silva's book? Because if you get it, I'm next. So I've got that for him, too. <laughs> it, he's my, well, I, I crack up laughing when I go there because the girls look at me. They go, where's the bag of books? So he won't, tell, he won't even, I never have to wait. I mean, I can go well, there, you know, whatever time I get there, I never have to wait because I bring my books. So sure, because we have paying in kind. <laughs> That's exactly. It's better than paying a copay. I'll tell you that. So, <laughs> right. Leonard, Leonard and Joel have a private talk. 
and what happens and what's the end result. That was scary, too. Well, you know, that's a tough one. I think I might pass. You I, can I pass like on that. Kind of, yeah, I kind of want to skirt that one because I'd like, I'd like the readers to kind of fill that one in on their own, read that one on their own. Um, it's kind of crucial to where that whole portion of the story goes. So I'm going to, I'm going to pass. <laughs> okay, so that's a problem. i got plenty more. So who, somebody gets killed. I'm so sad. There's a body that's yes. found, and how does the Dr. Spencer treat the autopsy, and who is Kenzo, and what happens at the evacuation center? This was odd, let me tell you. Yeah, so so there's a, a storm that comes and washes out the, the fishing tournament, in fact, right? Yeah. So they actually, halfway through or, you know, several hours into the fishing tournament, they have to call it quits. They sandbag and they go to the evacuation center for anybody living in a certain area that's susceptible to flooding. And, um, and of course, that includes all of my characters, right? So mm-hmm. this is, I've always said that living in these small towns has a, a dynamic that's so different from the anonymity of a city or even suburbia. And, but when they get into this evacuation center, it's even closer quarters, it gets you know, it becomes tense mm. because people are literally, you know, in, in small quarters for a few days, and it's more than they can handle. And um, what happens is they send out search parties to make sure that a couple of people they that weren't there that they thought should be were either safe or bring them back. Mm. And one of the search parties comes back with these bones that at one place at the foot of Dead Man's Leap they discovered, um, I guess, the, the flooding, the waters had uncovered some bones. So we realized that they're human bones. And so now we have, the, the sheriff has the question of what do we have here? Do we have, is this something that happened recently? Was this a long time ago? Is this a missing person? Is this a murder? Is this someone who fell in an accident and, you know, never survived the jump uh, or, or the fall? So there's this whole other mystery that's going on. It has to be solved while they're in this evacuation center. And um, I forgot what your other question was. Oh, how does he treat the autopsy? Um, yeah. You know, he he's new to the village, the doctor. He's, you know, he's just a local doc. He's not a coroner. You know, he does, you know, he's the guy you go to for the headache and the backache. And so um, he had not realized in, a, in the prior book that an unnatural death was an unnatural. He thought it was a natural death. So when he's faced with this, um, yeah, because there are two deaths, two bodies, right? There's a murder. Well, there's not a murder. There's a, a dead body and there are bones. And so he needs to do an autopsy or at least do an assessment at the evacuation center so he can understand. And he does it very carefully because he's decided that he doesn't know enough about this and he can't, once again, make any mm-hmm. mistakes. So he's really cautious about that. And, again, he's new. This is a small, tight-knit village that's always a little you know, young, he's new, a little suspicious of people who are outsiders. That's a thing. It's a real thing. <laughs> it's, not, it's not just something we write about in books. And the same thing goes for Kenzo. So Kenzo Ishikawa, like I said, there's a Japanese element in my story. Mm-hmm. So... It just happens to be this gentleman who um, 
lives in the hills up above but comes down to help out for the sandbagging and the evacuation. And it's kind of an interesting part of his story because he was under suspicion in the first book. But um, in the second book, he doesn't, um, he doesn't keep to himself. He comes down and helps. You know, he doesn't mm-hmm. need to because he's safe, but he comes down to help. Okay, I think so that was your last minute. question. Yeah. I don't know. My, I don't even know where I am anymore. No. Um, <laughs> my back is calling me from this chair. Uh, what happens that Olivia, Bianca writes stories, so how come Olivia had a fit when she wrote something without her approval? And I just okay. found a picture of the of the of that skull, Japanese sculpture. There's a whole bunch of them. They're different ones. It's really cool. Yeah, they're beautiful. I have. I own a few. They're really beautiful. Um, and um, so, as far as Olivia and Bianca are concerned, Olivia is the editor of the paper. Bianca uh, writes to the paper, and Olivia is basically her boss. And but Olivia, like everybody else that's in this, this trapped in this evacuation center, they all have a bit of baggage and some past mm, secrets or stuff that they're trying to keep a little under wraps. And the stuff that's happening at the evacuation center and these deaths and things are – Olivia is somewhat involved, and we don't know why or how yet, but you can see that she's very tense, very conflicted about what's going on. And when she, and she just snaps at Bianca. They're best, they're very close friends. I can't say best friends, but they're really close friends and they're becoming best friends. But she catches her t- doing an interview and she said, well, that was, my, that was my report. I was working on that. And she snaps, which makes Bianca suspicious because she's not that kind of person. Mm. She's very kind-hearted. She always gives everybody the benefit of the doubt. So it's what gets Bianca wondering what is going on with Olivia? Because there is something going on with Olivia. Okay, before I forget, because still yell at me if I forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, it's really weird because I remember that your interview was for today, and then I printed out the one for Monday instead of the one for Thursday. So sad. Okay, Heroes Ever Die is Saturday, is Thursday. Sanctuary, I think, is Monday. I didn't get as uh, confirmation with the questions oh well uh, orientation on the 18th the 22nd this book was phenomenal Hooker Avenue uh, by Jody Jody Midman absolutely fantastic um, mm-hmm. Shadow yes, of the Gypsy yeah. on the 24th and what better way than to have a double yes two hour interview with the one and oh. only Iris Johansson Oh wow! Good to you. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> she wants to do captive and a face to die for, and she does an interview with everybody. But she loves me because I know what not to ask. So I send her the oh. questions, and if she doesn't like some of them, she gets to cross out and put the ones she likes because I don't really care. She's amazing, <laughs> and I interview oh, I interviewed wonderful. Tess Gerrinson two weeks ago for uh, her new book. Listen to me, and oh, I have good. to. Yeah. And October 3rd is a very special date. Um, this is the third time that I'm doing, it's not, a, it's not an interview, trust me. It's more like put Fran on the spot. Um, it's my college professor. Yes, Dr. George Cavuto is the foremost authority in reading. And this time we're going to talk about how young children acquire language, expressive and receptive language, reading programs that work and don't work, 
and anything else that he had me look up because I have 500 pages here of information and I have all his talking points. And yes, he will ask me to put me on the spot. And it's fun. It's my it's my uh, field, reading and learning disabilities. So we're going to even oh, that, talk about what happens when a child decodes a word and has no idea what the print says. And that's my specialty. Yeah. So. Actually, that, that should so be that interesting. Show is October. When is that? October third at ten. Uh huh. I'll okay. announce it October third at ten. This first one we did was the mechanization of education. And the last one was um, how do children learn to understand what they read. And we used the psychology and pedagogy of reading by Yui, which was the textbook I had to memorize when I had him as a professor. I still have the book. Mm -hmm. And the psycholinguistics of reading by Frank Smith. I just got another copy of that because he said you need to have that too. Okay. Yeah. So that sounds terrific. That's actually a field I'm very interested in, also. Yeah, it is. It's it's great, and he's a genius. But out of out of nowhere, he'll say, "Okay, what's your opinion? What do you think? Do you know what?" Uh, like, oh my God, because he has <laughs> he really after the, the show, spot. he has his colleagues. Yes, and I look to see how many people. What? Listen, last time I like, are you kidding? He had like over 200 people that listened to the, the show afterwards. It's a good thing I was That's smart because he said he sends me an assessment after the show, like I'm still getting graded, people for real. So well, when you know, once you're a professor, always your professor. <laughs> yeah, I, I found him on LinkedIn by accident, and he's like so thrilled. So when Annette sees the net, so what is why is she upset with this object? What's what bothers her about it? Yeah, this goes back again to the the sense of community, right? Annette lived there. Mm-hmm. a long time and she feels safe in that community mm-hmm. she this is a place where people don't lock their doors everybody knows everybody and this next day shows up at, um i'm trying to say, explain it without a spoiler this next day shows up clearly stolen off the auction table at from the inn and so she is so angry she's normally a kind-hearted person and mm-hmm. But she can't help being angry at anybody who could possibly have been involved in this because it's starting to shatter her sense of community, you know, who is, who's who, who mm. can you trust, whom can't you, who, whom can you trust, who can't you trust. Um, and, and so she kind of lashes out as well. And like I said earlier, you're in this, um, in this tight, um, in the evacuation center and things are, you know, it's hot, it's wet, it's uncomfortable. And, and now you found, we've got a dead body, we found old bones. Her auction house was, something was stolen mm. from the, not from the auction house, but from her inn. And so she, she reacts. You know, one of the so dynamics that's so important about my series is the fact mm-hmm. that these things are happening in towns where they shouldn't be happening, right? So... You know, in Winter Witness, and we have the first murder in this village that, you know, everybody, nobody used to lock their doors. So are they going to lock their doors going forward? I mean, how do they feel? Is it a, somebody, is it an, a local, is it an outsider? That has so much to do, that whole dynamics of insider-outsider, you know, transplant versus local, you know, it's a big thing. So the, the key to this are the bones. How does Mike find out who it is? And what is the, um, there's my question over here, how does Bianca come involved in this, and how does Mike proceed to find out who who the bones belong to? So, 
Mike has to conduct his investigation in the yeah. evacuation center, which is really difficult. But because he does that, Bianca, who is not, you know, an investigator, she doesn't really belong in these um, investigations. This is the second time now she helps him. The first time is in my first book in Winter Witness. And mm-hmm. that's because she was close to, to some of the people. Now, I always say that Bianca's always at the right place at the right time, right? And the sheriff says she's at the wrong place at the wrong time. But because it's, um, it's, it's hard to not know that there's an investigation going forward, she ends up accumulating a little bit of information here and there, either because she's a journalist or because she encounters this information. I always say that as an outsider, she has fresh eyes that sometimes the locals can't see something because they're just mm. sort of um, seeing things just the way they're used to seeing them. And so she, she can help him because I think she sees things a little differently. Also, she has um, – so there's a connection between the Netsuke, that little statuette, and, and, and the dead body. So because she, um, she recognizes this piece, she ends up – sort of in the middle um, of, of investigating. So, like I said, she doesn't really belong there, but she kind of insinuates herself in there, and they work really well together. Um, they're good at bouncing ideas off each other. They're kind of in, um, I don't know how you want to say it, like symbiotic kind of, you know, back and forth they connect, That which, by the way, is a problem for him, for Mike the sheriff, because he has yeah. a wife. He's married, and, and their marriage is suffering. It's not going well. She works in the city. She commutes down there. She has business down there, and um, so she's not home all the time. She's not a country girl. She doesn't like being there, and he has his own baggage from why he left New York, the police force, and so they're suffering. In the meantime, there's this other woman who is somebody he gets along with, that he can bounce ideas off of, that is rather... He finds comforting and soothing, and whereas things with his wife are very tense, so it kind of complicates mm. things, you know? But it made it interesting, that's for sure. <laughs> we won't say why. So now we have Trevor, and who's Emily? Tell us about Trevor and Emily. Yeah, so so Trevor is one of those teenagers that is kind of angst-ridden and... He has plenty of reason to be also. He's got some back story that you'll find out if you read the first book in the series. Mm-hmm. And um, and he's like the, the typical bad boy. The sheriff kind of has his eye on him because he, he gets into trouble all the time. Small town trouble, but trouble just the same. He was a suspect in the murder in um, the first book for good reason. Um, and Emily is... Another teenager, she's new to town because her mom, who's a local, had left town many years ago and just returned in the first book with her teenage daughter. And she's one of these just delightful people that is world, you know, more worldly than her age, you know, just sort of smart and insightful. And she sees Trevor for the good side of Trevor. Everybody sees the bad boy, but she sees the kind and, you know, the, the vulnerable Trevor. And so mm. she kind of roots for him and has befriended him, and his association with him is good because, you know, kind of takes the edge off. And um, 
And she's sort of a buffer between Trevor and the rest of the community. I gotta skip some of these questions because we're never gonna have time to finish all of them. <laughs> so um, I think I told you much. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. So, how does Mike link Leonard to his past? I love Leonard. And explain why Eugene, Ernie, and Stella were inseparable friends. And well, again, we can't go through all of their stories, but they're yeah, interesting. Yeah, their stories are complicated, but they they are intertwined for sure. And it's something I experienced here. In fact, I went to a wedding, my nephew's wedding, um, yesterday or the day before yesterday, and um, all these people got together, you know how we do at weddings and funerals, people I hadn't seen in a long time, and some of them mm. were friends from when I was this young teenager when I was living here, and um, and I remembered all these stories, and it was just one year, and I feel really connected to these people, right? So you can imagine, in a small town where the whole school has, you know, 20 students in each grade level, you know, in a high school, you, you don't even break mm-hmm. 100 people, you know, is the real intimacy. And um, so these people are really interconnected. And as the, and the more they do, the more their lives get interconnected mm-hmm. in, in, when they make good choices and when they make bad choices. And so they all have a connection from their past that kind of ties them together. And, and so... They are inseparable. They were very protective. Everybody had some reason to need for some protection, and they look out for each other, I think is the best way to say it without telling too much. Yeah, I know. That's why I crossed out the next question, because then that would give away a little too much. I'm getting good yeah. at this. Now, <laughs> Trevor. Trevor, dear, my dear Trevor. I actually like Trevor. He, he, he's yeah, got a more deal, poor kid. So how come he tried to leave town? So he does try to leave town. He, Like I said, he has baggage mm. with his mother, his father. There are all kinds of issues. And um, yeah. he, he, he needs some faith because what I'm also learning about living in a small town like this is that as much as I love being connected, sometimes it is hard. It, it, you always mm. feel like you, you don't have enough personal space. And I live on a farm. Uh, sort of a farm, mm-hmm. and um, but I, I really sometimes feel like I don't have personal space. So while Trevor, who's regarded as a bad boy and can't seem to break out of that, not that he tries very hard, um, and all the baggage and how the community thinks of him and his family, he needs some space. It's time to just give himself some space. I don't think his intention was to leave for good, but I don't think he yeah. really knew. But he ended up being thwarted because of the flooding. The train stopped running. So he gets on a train to get out of town, and he ends up being turned back. Um, so he ends up back in the evacuation center with everybody else. Well, you know something? I sit and listen to the storms and stuff, and you know what the really weird thing is that they tell about the, the storms in Kentucky, Missouri, Minnesota, everywhere, and yeah. they show yeah. the houses, but they don't show where they did what they did for the people. I have no oh, idea. Yeah. Where they evacuated these people, I mean, I had tears in my eyes watching these beautiful houses and all the things inside of them being picked up and tossed in a a truck to be thrown away, a junk truck. And I'm saying, how do you just toss away people's lives? And there was not one governor or anybody that said where these people were. They even had this girl saying, well, we have whatever we have. It didn't look like food. It looked like toys. It didn't look like anything. So that you know, it's interesting me. because 
I'm imagining that the news is showing the devastation because it's more striking and it, I don't know what yeah. they say, you know, it sells more papers. Right. Um, and then, um, but you know, I agree with you. I, I, I used to work on in Long Beach on Long Island during, and I was there during Hurricane Sandy. And um, we, I mean, my building was condemned. My, yeah. my, my friends who all lived on Long Island, they, everyone lost their cars. They were found somewhere in another part of town. They just floated away. Their houses were flooded. I mean, everything, right? And that, that enters into my story. The flooding really does some damage in the community in my book. And, um, and, and, at part of the end of the book is about how people are throwing away and discarding and realizing that those objects that we thought were so important really aren't that important because we have our life, we have our health. There were a few close calls because, um, you know, these, these floods take lives too, you know, and, and, um, and so it's about letting go of objects and kind of giving some more attention to those intangible things, whether they're relationships, or grieving, or whatever it is that you kind of have to walk through those, the good and the bad, uh, unburdening well, secrets. That's really what I was shooting for, theme-wise. Well, we had a Hurricane Ida here in September, the second, mm-hmm. actually, and everyone, it was really scary. First of all, last week we had a bad storm, so the ceiling, our ceiling is leaking, so now we have to oh wait till they come to fix the ceiling because I had to fix the roof, and then we're going to have to do the kitchen and finally get the wallpaper off because of this stupid flood. But oh, the no. one in September was horrible because nobody realized, nobody told anybody to move their car. Everyone in the building lost their car. Every one of us oh, lost wow. their car. Yeah. Yeah, and we I had to call a towing. In Long Beach. I don't think anybody got kept their cars. The damage was so bad. It was. It was. I could not believe it. We lost the car, and I looked at my poor baby car, and I go, "Oh my God! I can't believe after all these years we had a." When I, when I finally got the towing, the towing company was horrible, and I said to them, "I'm going to announce you on my radio show and tell you that you're horrible because you didn't come." They came ten minutes later. Seriously. Oh, there you go. And the, I love that radio And show. then we, really we, went to, um, we went to um, Tarrytown Honda, God bless them, and the guy said they had three cars, not even, three Honda Civics. They had wow. nothing. And I looked at this black well, car and I go... Well, we already had a problem. Yeah, and, and they looked at me and they said, which one do you want? I want the black one because it it's speaking to me. Like the other black mm-hmm. one, and we had the car the next day. I couldn't believe it. I was like, holy God. Because oh, we, we were taking cabs, and they were jacking up prices. I mean, really. Yeah, no, you really lucked so, out. I know everybody's having trouble getting cars. Crazy. Now they still are, yeah. So what happens, Lisa said people realize that objects are just objects, and people are more important. So how did this storm change the attitude of the people living in this particular town. And, and what about Bianca and, and her situation? Yeah, I think that um, pretty much what I said earlier, that, that, that they lost objects. They learned mm-hmm. that there were close calls, but that losing those objects were nothing in comparison to what could have happened to them. And they, you know, they pick up and, and mm-hmm. I'm going to have a, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going I'm so sorry. 
That's all right, no problem. Um, so they just basically need to pick up from there and move forward, you know. And I think the same thing goes for Bianca. Um, she learns to grieve through this process, and um, and that's really important for her. And she needs to build on that and move forward with her life because she really couldn't really truly move forward until she grieved properly. And the town is starting to accept her more also. Um, and that's important for the story because, you know, we're moving on to book three and four, and she's getting mm. herself more and more to be a part, considered a, a local, basically. And lives have been changed. Secrets have been revealed, and we have to see where those consequences will be in, in relationships yeah. and, you know, legally. So before we end... Where can what have, what about Bianca? Where do we find her next? And tell us a little bit about book three. Mm-hmm. So book three I'm working on now is uh, tentatively titled Autumn Embers. I think I'm going to stick with that title, but it's Autumn Embers. And, nice. And um, it's sort of, <laughs> thank you, it picks up a little bit from where, uh, a little bit from book number two, and she goes to Japan this time. So the story kind of goes back and forth while we follow what's going on with the villagers. But she's also in Japan. She's visiting her son, and she's doing a little follow-up with the Neski. And um, and it, it's a story about identity, and it's a story about, um, I, I'd say mostly it's a story about identity. And I think that I'm going to have a great deal of fun developing a book that takes place in a totally different place. And, um, and, and she needs to... This is where she's going to start figuring out where she's going from here. And, um, and so I have up to six books planned for this, so we'll see exactly. You know, I'm still, about, I don't know, a third of the way into Autumn Embers, so it's starting to evolve a little differently than I laid it out. So I'm, very, I'm kind of curious myself. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, when you get it done, just let me know. I'll stick you back in my I schedule. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I... I can't believe, you know, somebody said something to me yesterday, and I blew a cork. Um, everybody writes a book, and they work really hard to put the book out and to make it the best they could possibly be. I work really mm-hmm. hard to read the book, <laughs> memorize the book, write the questions, and do the interview the best I can. It's obvious. And somebody, <laughs> it's obvious and somebody, said, to, somebody said to me yesterday, oh, that's so cute of you, how nice. You don't want to know what came out after that. I mean, really. <laughs> no, you work real. It's obvious because you know the story so well. I mean, when I did this with you last year with Winter Witness, it was the same thing. I mean, you you know this story. And um, um, it's always so impressive to see. I know how many you put out a year. So I'm Too very many. impressed. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's Professor, that's Professor Cavuto's fault. See, he taught me when he did this class, the very first class I had with him, um, he said he, we had to write five term papers. We couldn't write them. We couldn't type them. We had to write it on an index card. And it came in the week oh. after, and he looked at it. Yeah, this is horrible. And he says to the class, you're all a bunch of idiots, and you're stupid. Oh, boy. And nobody, Oh, yeah, he doesn't wince his words. And I go, the worst that could happen is I have one master. This is the second in reading. So what if I don't get it? What am I going to do? 
And then he mm-hmm. looked at me and he goes, little girl, I wasn't so little then, I'm 106 pounds, I was like 100 million pounds. And I said, yes. He's come up front, please. And I go, you know how embarrassing that was? No, I'm serious. <laughs> he taught, if you read Frank Smith and Huey, you understand how to look past what's on the page and figure out what's underneath what the author's trying to say. It's called mm-hmm. the deep structure of reading. And because yes. of him, I, I really get it. And he looked at me, and, you you know, the grades were 0 to 10. Seriously. Okay. So I said to myself, mm-hmm. what, what could be worse? He's going to just tell everybody I'm stupid and I got a 4. So he looked at me. He says, you got the only 10 in the class. And I knew I was wow. in trouble after that. Yeah, and he looked at me and he said, <laughs> the article was hard. And he said, I have, you have to do four more papers, and I have the articles that you're going to do right here. You have to pick the one. You have to use the one I, ones I picked. I go, but what if I don't know what it's about? And what if I can't? I didn't even have a choice. Seriously. Yeah, but you came through, and that and it comes through uh, when came, you work with the with the author. Came, you know, the funny part is that I was a non-red trick because I didn't know if I was going to finish it. But at the end of the class, I get a call from the registrar that said, Dr. Cavuto just matriculated you. You're stuck. Um, there you go. You're into the long haul. Yeah, what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? This I love reading the books. I really enjoy it. So tell everybody where we can get books one and two because book three, when it comes out, are you going to do another one with Partners in Crime? Because they're going to ask me that. I will. I, yeah, I really yeah, I love working with Partners in Crime. So, yeah, definitely. So I'll be with you next time. So this book, thir- book three is scheduled actually come, to come out a year from this fall. So October of 20. Where are we? We have no idea. 2023. So um, okay. it's still due out a year. It's a little bit, uh, it's not exact, it's about a year and a half after Dead Man's Leap, not quite a year. And um, so that will be out next October. Um, I will be doing a tour with Partners in Crime. Um, mm-hmm. You can, well, my book is available on all the regular platforms like Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You know, it's on Kindle and Nook <coughs> and iBooks. Um, if you go to my website, which is uh, my name, com, you can see some links there that will take you directly to my books. Um, I'm on Facebook with my name. You can find me on Twitter at TDB Rice or on Instagram, Instagram at TDB uh, underscore Rice. Um, oh, and you know where else you can find me? Um, I work together with three wonderful authors, um, Carol Tulio, mm-hmm. Jen Collins-Moore, and Lita Sedaris. We um, work together as the women behind the Sleuths and Sidekicks, and we have a website called sleuthsandsidekicks.com. And um, on there we have some really nice blog posts running and some book reviews and um, some writing prompts we've been working on. It's been a ton of fun working together, so you can go there. And like I said, my regular website tells you more about me, about my my first book was nominated for an Agatha Silver Falcon, uh, May, uh, uh, Chanticleer Mystery Mayhem Award. You know things like that. My flash fiction is on there. You can link to those that have been published online, um, and links to books where my short stories have been published and some anthologies. Um, my my um, story Tokyo Stranger was nominated for a Derringer Award, and it's in. Um, the Mystery Writers of America, When a Stranger Comes to Town, and that book's nominated for an Anthony. I can't wait to find out how that does. And um, and that's all on my website. That is fantastic. I wouldn't even tell you. 
Um, my my last book was about my sister growing up in the South Bronx with my sister. It's called Sisters. It's true stories about the antics we used to pull, and it got some really interesting. I was interviewed on um, Authors First by Maxine, Dr. Maxine Thompson, two weeks ago. It was really nice, um, and Population Zero didn't go over that big. Uh, Population Zero, the world without people. I had a created nine worlds that you wouldn't want to live in, and I invited a dead person, a spirit, to experience the world, hoping that people would stop being nicer in this one. So, as I say at the end of every show, an act of kindness goes a long way, and with this pandemic, everybody needs to start smiling and being nicer, because I'm finding very negative. But this has been the most positive thing that's happened all day. <laughs> but thank you well, so much. Well, I agree much. with you. Thank you. And this, this has is been really great. Wonderful. Everybody... You want to read Dead Man's Leap, and yes, Dr. Mermelstein, it's in the bag for your wife, not a problem. Um, everybody <laughs> have a you. great day. It's a beautiful day, and bye. Bye-bye, friend. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.